In uh, 2012, President Obama warned the Syrian President Assad if he used chemical weapons against his own people, military action would be taken. He called it his red line. In other words, do not cross it or else. In 2013, Assad sent bombs laced with sarin, which are chemicals, that caused 1,500 deaths. Many of the victims were reported to be foaming at the mouth. They were twitching. 400 of the victims were children. Assad crossed the red line, and nothing happened. I know I'm not making a political statement. There's discussions on both sides of the aisle if this was a wise decision or not, but a red line, if it is given and nothing is done, is it really a red line? Have you ever met a parent that has threatened their children but never acted out on that threat? How do you think children view a parent like that? My dad had red lines, some very serious red lines, and if I crossed those red lines, I know I would be dead, so I would not cross those. He had one red line, which was never hit your sister. I had four sisters, and they knew that red line, it was for me and my brother, but I did not cross that red line. I would not want the judgment that came on the other side. Today we're going to study about Jehovah's red line. And you don't cross his red line because God is a God who means what he says. King Saul crossed it. He crossed the line. And so in a very... Um, very honestly, this is not a good story at all. It's actually a very troubling story. It's troubling for all of us because we have to really take to account our own lives and where we stand before God. So I'm going to ask you to open up the First Samuel, chapter 14 and 15. And we're going to go through mainly chapter 15. I, I hope you read, I've realized that uh, if I really preach through detailed in each chapter, we'd be here for three, four hours, and my first two sermons in Samuel have been pretty long. So I'm going to ask you to read ahead of time so we can just kind of hit the meat of what this section is about. And so we've been studying Samuel, we're going to be going in the second Samuel, Kings, and our theme is glory days. It's the idea we're going to study Saul's life, David's life, and Solomon's life. Because those were the high watermarks for Israel. We're going to learn about each of them and we're going to learn lessons from them. We are halfway through Saul. And Saul is a very confusing man. He's a very strange man. And I would say, I'm not even sure if he knew who he was. It's interesting, Derek said, sometimes we ask ourselves, who am I? You know, who am I? And last week he said, if you're a Christian, you are crucified in Christ. I'm not sure Saul knew who he was. If you look at each chapter, he's sort of a different guy. So if we ask Saul, who are you? Well, in chapter 9 and 10, Saul is the ideal king. He's the ideal king. Taller than everybody, stronger than everybody, better looking than everybody, and anointed by God himself. Then you get to chapter 11, Saul becomes Saul the victor. Not just this amazing, dazzling king, but he's powerful. Remember, he fought the Ammonites who wanted to take out the right eye of all the Israelites, and he won the victory. 
Well, because of that victory, we get to chapter 13 where he becomes Saul the Proud. He's really proud of himself, impressed with himself, so much so that he started offering up sacrifices without the priests. And you don't do that, but he was presumptuous, arrogant, thinking he could do that. Well, we get to chapter 14, and we're going to find out he's not just the ideal king or victor, but he's a hot mess. He is messed up. Chapter 14 is very strange. It begins at the end of chapter 13 where the Philistines start attacking Israel. They defeat him. And so what they do is they take all of their weapons except for Saul's and his son Jonathan. So there's only two swords in the land. And all the rest of the Israelites go to the Philistines to get their axes and their mattoxes and their hoes sharpened. And so the Philistines regulate all of the armaments of the Israelites. So really, they're at a disadvantage. So then we get to chapter 14, and Jonathan feels called by God to fight the Philistines on his own. So him and his armor bearer go up on this hill where there's two giant rocks and a passage in the middle, and he kills 20 guys through this passage. And God brings huge victory, brings an earthquake. And it's quite a, it's an amazing feat. But Saul doesn't like it because Jonathan gets all the credit. And so if you look in 1 Samuel 14, Saul makes this weird vow. In my Bible it says a rash vow. I think it's because he's jealous. So Jonathan just defeated the Philistines. In verse 24, listen to what he says. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day because they were fighting. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I'm avenged of my enemies. You notice how it all of a sudden became about him? My enemies till I'm avenged? I thought this was fighting for God. Well, Saul was not just proud, but he's, he's take, he wants credit. He wants everybody to notice him. Well, if you keep reading the story, Jonathan didn't hear the vow. Actually, Jonathan's just getting back from battle. It says that he walks through the woods where this honeycomb's dripping honey on the ground, takes his staff, dips it in there, and licks the honey. And the people said, Jonathan, did you hear what your dad said? No, what'd he say? He said, if you eat today before the battle's over, you're going to be cursed. And Jonathan said, that's stupid. Why would he say that? He actually, if you read the vernacular, it says that. Later on in the story, because Saul made this crazy vow, the people were so hungry after they beat the Philistines, they took their animals, slaughtered them, and ate them right away without even cooking them, and they had blood in them. And that's a sin, according to Levitical law. So because of Saul's crazy vow, his son is cursed, and the people have sinned. Saul even brings the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. And if we would remember earlier, you don't bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And so what happens is God kind of refuses to talk to Saul for a while. And if you get to verse 41 of chapter 14, watch how he's so, just not just impatient, but he goes on his feelings. Look at verse 41. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? God basically took his presence away from Saul because of all of his crazy decisions. 
So he said, if this guilt is in me, or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, give of God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. That's the priest would wear two different stones, or they'd throw these stones, Urim and Thummim. It's like casting lots to figure out God's will. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. All right, here I am. If you want to kill me, go ahead. That's, he says, here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me. And more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. So he's okay for his son even to die. He's, not, he's nuts. He's losing it, actually. So you could say, in chapter 14, Saul goes from this anointed king to this great victor, to this proud man, to a guy who's very impetuous. He's very rash, full of emotions, full of fear and anger when people are against him. And so that's why at the end of chapter 14 it says, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. He has no peace. Have you ever had your life be where it's so chaotic, so random, and you just are always acting in impulse that you never feel at peace? You never really feel like you hear from God? And in your quick decisions to act, you hurt people, you hurt yourself. Trouble never seems to go away. That's really what's happening here with Saul. And then we get to chapter 15, and the very first verse in chapter 15 is amazing. Listen to what God says to Saul in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Here's what he's saying. God's giving you another chance. I know you messed up. I know you made crazy decisions. You even were going to kill your son. But God is going to give you another chance. He wants to re-anoint you, pour his spirit back on you. What do you say, Saul? To me, what this is, is grace. God gave to Saul what he did not deserve. Another chance. To be the king again in the eyes of God. Paul says the same thing. He said, I was the least of the apostles. I was unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul said he was unworthy and God extended grace. Saul is unworthy and God extends grace. Another chance. Grace is undeserved blessing, favor, and merit of God. I was unworthy for so many years. I don't deserve this, this job. Some people even told me that I remind them kind of of Joel Osteen. I know. And I'll tell you what, I'm not worthy. But God gives me grace. We all make foolish decisions. Saul made foolish decisions. Leading him a life without hope. And grace broke in. And I'll tell you what, if you're like me, that needs grace every day, it's available. 
In this passage, there's one way to receive it. Listen to how you receive it in verse 1. He says, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This word listen in the King James means hearken. It means to give attention in order to obey. To really hear from God and obey. In this story, honestly, Saul is given an incredible chance. He's just told to listen, to obey. And look at verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3 it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's very simple. All he's supposed to do is kill all of Amalek's people and animals. And this seems harsh. I'll tell you, this seems harsh. Here's the Here's what he has to listen to and do. Death to the Amaleks. And when you read it, it sounds ridiculous. Why would God do that? It's very simple. If you read Exodus chapter 17, when Israel was weary and they were walking in the wilderness, they were going from Egypt to the Promised Land, the Amalekites jumped them. They ambushed them. Deuteronomy, it says, this wasn't just a normal ambush. They actually snuck up behind them. So imagine two million people are walking through the desert and they come up behind them and it says they cut off the tail. That means they destroyed the people in the back. Who are the people in the back of a large group that's walking? Young kids, old people, animals, and probably older women. And it says the Amalekites came and killed all of them. So this was a heinous act. And then this is the same story in Exodus and Deuteronomy. When Moses, as long as his arms were up, the Amalekites would fall to the sword of Israel. Once his arms went down, Israel would fall to the sword of the Amalekites. So Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms and they were able to wipe them out and God made a decree. He said, from this day on, blot out their name forever. Blot out their name forever. So when we get to 1 Samuel, Saul should know this. What's very interesting is generations later, they didn't blot all of the people out, and there is one descendant of the Amalekites. His name is Haman. Have you ever heard of Haman? Haman shows up in the book of Esther. Haman is the guy that basically said, I am going to make a decree that all of the Jews are going to die on the face of the earth. So God kind of knew this is a bad seed. Well, let's see. Does he listen? Starting in verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell him 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among, among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out. This is uh, Jethro, Moses' uncle's people. And they were kind to Israel, so he let them go. Starting in verse 7. 
And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So he did it. He obeyed. He did what he said, right? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Wait a minute. He left alive the king. He's supposed to kill him. Keep reading, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves. So all of the good animals they kept. And the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy him. So he was told to wipe out everything, but he keeps Agag alive and he kept all of the good animals. But look, they did kill all the despised and worthless animals. Wasn't that nice? So the skinny, diseased animals they killed, but they kept the fatted animals. Complete disobedience. It even gets worse if you go to verse 12. Watch this. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down. So he went to Carmel, this huge, this big mountain, and Saul made a monument, a statue to himself. Because he's so proud. So he's supposed to blot them out, and he does just the opposite. He lets them live, and he attributes all praise to himself. Did Saul listen? No. Not at all. Did he give strict attention to detail in order to obey? No. It is one thing to be a, what I would call a hot mess, an unthinking, acting irrationally, letting your emotions get the better of you. It is quite another thing to intentionally ignore God's clear directives. That's what I'm calling the red line. Here's what I'm saying is the red line. When God is clear as crystal, and you ignore him to pursue your own gain, your own fame, your own pleasure, and your own profit, you've crossed the red line. I'll be honest with you, when he walked up here, I hate that kind of stuff. I just can't stand it. And when I do this job, this red line terrifies me. I don't want to be, I don't want to be doing things for my own fame like Saul did, my own pleasure, my own profit. And when we sin, we need to be quick to ask God for forgiveness. And what Saul did is he wasn't. And honestly, you know, as I think through this, I wrote this down, I said, there's a huge difference between when you make a decision out of weakness, failure, temptation, foolishness, or when you blatantly reject what God has said in his word. We have to be really careful that we don't reject God, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> when I come up here, I'm a weak person. I really am. And you're, he's, he's probably right. I think he did it wrong, but he's probably right. I got some things to learn. I think we all do. But if we're not sensitive, like I don't mind people pointing that out to me. I don't mind it. It's not about me. And Sue, really, I appreciate what you said. That means the world to me. Because I know you. I know you love me and you support me. I appreciate that. I pray that what I do doesn't step in the way of God's glory. Because when you step in the way of God's glory, as Saul did, you've crossed a red line crossed a red line. Anytime you think you're better than somebody else even, 
Like, I think we've got to be very careful how we judge our leaders in office. I'd hate that job. I'd hate it. And so I'd say this, wrestling and playing around with sin is one thing. Thumbing your nose at God and welcoming sin as your best friend is quite another. So what happens when you cross the red line? Two things happen. Look at verse 10. Two things happen in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and God said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. That word regret means that God is grieved. God in his heart is upset that he made King Saul. Actually, Samuel expresses in human form what God feels. And it says Samuel was angry and he cried all night. When Saul turned, Samuel cried all night. Actually, Samuel's the one that anointed Saul. He had hopes for Saul. Here Saul is turning against his God. God is our Father. He cares more for us than anyone. And when we shake our fist and rebel against him, it causes him enormous pain. I was thinking about it this week. Have you ever sat with a father who just learned their child has made a decision that will ruin the rest of their life? It's terrible. That's how God feels towards somebody who's crossed this red line, who no longer wants him. The question is, uh, so does God change his mind when it says regret? That's a big theological question. If God's sovereign, doesn't he know what somebody's going to do today and tomorrow and the next day? Yeah, but in the moment, God feels pain, real pain just like you do when your son or daughter mess up. I am convinced if a person crosses clear red lines on a constant basis, that means they take their fist, shake it at God, and said, I will not do what you told me to do. They're exposing their unbelief, even if they claim Christianity or go to church once in a while. Unbelief is not something to treat lightly. Look at what 2 Timothy says. If we deny him, oh, he denies us. So some of you might be sitting here as, how do I know if somebody crossed the line? How do I know if my kid did? How do I know if I'm getting close to crossing that line? What are the effects? I'd say in God, he grieves, the human heart hardens. When a person rejects God, they start losing sensitivity. The heart becomes like rock, where the Spirit's trying to get in there. He's trying to woo a person, trying to bring conviction, but hardness stops it. So you have no more sorrow, no more shame. While God and his people weep over the rebellion of the sinner, the hard heart yawns and smiles. Who cares? Watch what happened to Saul. In verse 13, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says to him, Blessed be to you, to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Here he denied the Lord, but he thinks he actually obeyed the Lord when he did not. So he's, he's so hard, he doesn't even understand how he's so wrong. Verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Meaning if you've obeyed the Lord, then why am I hearing sheep? 
Why am I hearing cattle? You did not obey the Lord. He has no shame, no sensitivity. Verse 15, he justifies his decision. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. See, the reason we didn't kill them is they wanted to use these for sacrifice. And in 21, he blames others. The people took the spoil. Not me. And then he has a Freudian slip. He says, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So he's actually distancing himself from God. I'll tell you what, I, my sermon, I know it stinks because my mind's off of this thing. I'm sorry. That really shook me up. I just want to tell you something about this sermon. There is a point in time when I really believe you can cross the red line with God, and it's very dangerous. It's dangerous. Saul crosses the red line. Later on, you'll see here in verse 27, there's this sign that Samuel's leaving. Saul goes to grab him, rips off a edge of his garment, God said, that's a symbol of what happened to you. I no longer consider you mine. I have, here's my slide, my slide basically, go to the next slide. Basically the diagnosis of a hard heart, you can read all about it in 22 to 23, but I want to show you something. Go to 2 Samuel, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going off track. I just want to show you something. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I do this for myself when I think maybe I'm in the wrong. This is a verse where you can tell if you have a hard heart or not. It talks about two kinds of hearts. And so even when somebody comes up to confront you in front of people, what do I do with that? Do I say, how dare he? Or do I go back home do I talk with God, go out in the woods, walk and talk? And so here's what 2 Corinthians 7 says, verse 5. For even if we see Paul, there, there was in 1 Corinthians, there's a big problem going on. This guy was sleeping with his father's wife. You don't do that. And so Paul confronted him, saying, even pagans don't do that. Stop it. So he wrote him a letter and said, confront this guy. You don't do that. And so this is what this is about. So verse 5, he says, even if we come to Macedonia, our bodies have no rest. Actually, let's go down. Go to verse 10. It's verse 10. Actually, go to verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered. So he sent a letter. He said, stop it. It said they were grieved. They were broken. They were full of sorrow. And he goes, you know what? I'm rejoicing, not because you felt sorrow, but because of how you received it. In verse 10 is how they received it. They said there's godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death. Here's what godly sorrow does. Let's say he comes up to me, and I look at my heart, and he's right. That's the first thing I should do is I should look at my heart. And if he's right, I need to repent. I need to change. Worldly sorrow would say, how dare he come and say that to me? Does he know he's talking to? That's how Saul would react. Sometimes we do that. Our kids don't like what we do, but I'm a parent. You don't talk to me like that. But what if they're right? 
or our friends come up and confront us. Stop judging me, but what if they're right? What if he's right? Worldly sorrow doesn't care. It's hard. It's cold. doesn't care what God's word says anymore. Who cares? Godly sorrow says, okay, I'll listen. And if I'm wrong, I will do whatever it takes to see justice done. That's what it says. It says in verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, that means indignation, that how, I, I can't believe I did that. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And so what he's saying is he's saying, if, I'm, if I have a good heart and I'm wrong, I will do whatever it takes to make it right. Hard hearts say, who cares? God wants you to be the same way. There's some people that have been part of this church and they have left God, and you try to talk to them, and they're mad. They don't care. They won't ever talk to you again. But there's some people that are quick to mercy, quick to forgive, quick to listen. Which one are you? That's really the, that's the whole point of this. And if you have a hard heart, I'm just saying be careful. I, Kathy Harrison gave me this article, and this may be the most important thing of the sermon. Please listen to it. This, this uh, guy had a daughter, actually, um, their grandfather died, and the daughter was asking him, what's heaven like? Who gets in? Who gets to enjoy it? And here is what he writes. Heaven is not for those who merely believe in God or perform wonderful deeds in his name, but for those who truly wish to do nothing but love and serve him for all eternity. In other words, heaven is for those who actually want to go. If we find little appeal in spending even a few minutes with God now, how can we expect that we'll find any appeal in spending infinity with Him? This is the problem with people who say they don't pray, attend church, or read Scripture, but they go on walks instead or spend time with their families, or go to the beach, and that's where they find God. It's true that God can be found in all those things, but you can also enjoy them without thinking about God at all. There are only a few activities in life that are purely, solely, and inevitably about God and God only. And those are the activities many Christians enjoy least of all. Most of us can't stand to worship the Lord unless it's in the context of some relaxing, and entertaining recreational activity. Yet we still claim to desire heaven. No, it's not heaven we want. It's a vacation. The souls in hell are only in hell because there are no condition for heaven. It's not just a bunch of serial killers and rapists down there after all. Those are just regular people who love themselves more than God and preferred their own enjoyment to worshiping and serving him. That's why when our time comes and we stand before the throne of judgment, I imagine that God will only need to ask one question. What do you want? And we, for the first time, will be forced to answer honestly. I fear that a great many of us will have no choice but to look back at him and say, myself, Lord, only myself. Yet I pray and I have hope that you and I will be able to answer with gratitude and joy 
you, Lord. Only you. And no matter what answer we give, God's response will be the same. So, so be it. In other words, I don't think you're going to find one person in heaven with a hard heart. Jared, before you come up, I'm just going to pray. Father, we uh, just pause, and it was strange today, God, really strange. It's good. It's different. makes us think. And I pray, God, all of us would think and uh, ask this question. Are we sensitive to the work of the Spirit, or have we not heard from Him in a long time? long time. I pray, God, if anybody here has a hard heart, that you'd awaken them. I pray, Father, if anybody here is not quick to evaluate their own frailty, weakness, failures, God, help them to realize our only person we compare to is Christ and not other people, Him alone. So, Lord, I just pray for your grace, and I pray that, God, we would be different because we've been here today. It's in your name we pray.